now let us read Psalm 100. I'm reading from the ESV. The psalm begins with a superscription, a psalm for giving thanks. The psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Well, here it is, the tail end of February, but still I'm stretching it a bit, somewhat early in the year, I would say. And so I thought it important, if you will, to tune our hearts to a note of thankfulness, one that will hopefully resonate throughout the rest of 2024 and beyond. And Psalm 100, I believe, is tailor-made to do just that. Likely this psalm was written uh, with a twofold purpose. Uh, The first being uh, is seen by its many similarities um, of serving as a summary or a climax of the previous group of psalms, Psalms 93 through Psalm 99. These are known as the kingship psalms or the accession psalms because they reference the king. The Lord is king, and the Lord's reign, and the, Lord's, the reign of the Lord's anointed. And, so the other, and the other purpose is one of a liturgical nature. Either where the nations are joining with Israel to praise him, or one in which all of mankind, all of mankind are the ones who are called to come and praise the Lord. But why why giving thanks? Why a psalm for giving thanks? What's so important? What's so important of living with an attitude of gratitude? Well, positively, it's, it's because our God is worthy of praise, of our praise and of our thanksgiving. And negatively, because the lack of thankfulness, ingratitude, is a serious sin. It reveals a heart, I think, that reflects more the devil and not our Lord and Savior. And I think it possibly even reveals a heart that is not regenerate, not made alive, not sensitive to God's amazing mercy and grace. Ingratitude or thanklessness can show up in countless ways. It shows up in grumbling, in jealousy, in coveting, in unkind thoughts and words, in disobedience and so on. It shows up in schools. It shows up in society. It shows up in homes. It shows up at work. And yes, believe it or not, it even shows up in the church. 
So I submit then that not only is this a relevant topic, one that is needed today in our own lives and in our church. And so with that in mind, I would be grateful if you would come along with me as together we look at Psalm 100, a psalm of thankfulness. Now structurally, the psalm itself is comprised of four sets of triplets, or if you want to get technical, they're called tricola. Verses 1 through 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Those are all a set of triplets, or tricola. And these triplets can be divided into two pairs each, comprised of verses 1 through 3 in the first group, and verses 4 through 5 in the second and the last verse in both of those function either in a causal manner or explicitly causal. Verse three is, in, or two, sorry, verse two is in a causal manner. Verse um, five is explicitly causal. My outline, again, if you're taking notes, uh, has two points. You'll be grateful to know it's only two. Um, the first is give thanks for what the Lord has done. That's verses one through three. And then two, my second point, give thanks for who the Lord is. Verses four and five. Let's look at the first. Give thanks for what the Lord has done. This starts off, the psalm starts off a psalm for giving thanks. And as I mentioned, it acts as a climax or a summary of these preceding kingship or accession psalms of 93 through 99. But unique in relation to them is that this psalm has what we call a superscription. Uh, seen here, a psalm for giving thanks. That's not part of the original text. And none of those other psalms in the kingship psalms have one. Uh, again, the superscription is not part of the original Hebrew text. Likely it was added sometime in the intertestamental period, somewhere between 200 and 300 B.C. But while it's not inspired in the theological sense, nevertheless, this superscription does reflect a very ancient tradition. And again, it's been added to highlight the psalm's function of summary or climax, one that rightly results in thanksgiving to our covenant-keeping creator, Lord, Yahweh himself. The psalm proper opens up in verse 1 with a jubilant command, but a command that is also an invitation Make a joyful noise to the Lord, to Yahweh, all the earth. And as mentioned before, there's two main viewpoints on how to interpret this. Is it for the nations of the earth to join Israel in giving praise and worship? Or is it a general invitation for all of mankind to do so to Yahweh? Well, the Jewish targums, that is the vernacular translations, uh, of Jewish works render the superscription as a psalm of thank offering. And they indicate that, that they viewed it as the former, that is, in conjunction with Israel bringing the prescribed thank offering. Israel's bringing the thank offering, they're inviting the nations to come and join them. However, while this was certainly applicable during the days of both tabernacle, tabernacle and temple, I confess I fall into the latter group. That is, God is drawing to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and grafting them into the true Israel through the finished work of Christ. Don't believe me? Look around. Look around. 
We are from all over the globe. And we're but a tiny subset of the church, the people of God. And so I think it is fitting that the psalmist opens wide the invitation to all the earth. For the Lord, for Yahweh, is king over all the earth. But what are all mankind, that is every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, invited to do? Well, first, they, and I submit we, are invited. No, invited is too tame of a word. We're commanded. We're commanded to do three things. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with, thanks, with, with singing. And as mentioned, the first thing we're commanded to do is make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, I know that this, this verse is often used as the comfort verse, if you will. For those of us who are, shall we say, less than skilled vocally, uh, or let's be honest, we're tone deaf in our singing. <clears throat> and you know what I mean. We, we say something along the lines of, well, you know, I can't sing very well, but at least I'm making a joyful noise. That's not the intent of the psalmist here. In fact, the translation, make a joyful noise, is far too tame. And I, I liked the psalm singing that we did because they got it right. It is a command to shout joyfully to the Lord. The word means to give a great shout, a war cry. It's the shout of acclamation with which a king is greeted when he ascends to the throne. It's along the lines of, huzzah! It's a royal fanfare as it was, or as it were, sorry. A shout of loyalty and homage from all mankind to Yahweh. Cry huzzah to Yahweh, all the earth. And secondly, we are commanded to serve the Lord with gladness. Service is this first response that we owe the Lord in our worship of him. In fact, service and worship go hand in hand. It's no coincidence that we call our worship, what? A service. This is the evening service. How far this extends is actually seen in Paul's entreaty of Romans 12, chapter 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the ESV. The King James, the New King James says what? Which is your spiritual service. All of life, therefore, is service, is worship. This, ex- this should change how we view work, how we view our quote-unquote free time. It should also change how we view the gathering together with the saints in corporate worship. For its priority is not lessened, but strengthened by this realization. If our individual lives are to be ones of service and worship, well, how much more then are we to joyfully gather together as the body of Christ to worship the triune God? And so the psalmist says we are to worship, we are to serve the Lord. How are we to serve him? How is all the earth to serve him? With gladness. With gladness. God is not a tyrant who forces his people to serve him. No, to serve the Lord, the one who has created all things, the one who is the author and sustainer of life, the one who cuts covenant with faithless, 
rebellious sinners like us, and yet who chooses to set his love on his people anyway. To serve this Lord, this Yahweh, is no drudgery or irksome burden. It's a gladsome thing. Psalm 2.11 tells us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. But this is not at all in conflict with this verse. In Psalm 2, it's the approaching of the Lord as the mighty one, the mighty warrior king. And here it is approaching the Lord as his people's shepherd. We see that in verse 3. Loving, glad, and joyful service is our grateful response to the mercy and grace of the Lord. But third, we are commanded to come into his presence with singing. And again, the translation falls a little short with singing. This is exuberant singing, joyful singing. This is singing loudly and with no uncertain voice. It is the singing of nothing less than liberation, being set free. Now, this is not a picture of some kind of self-induced emotionalism. This isn't happy, clappy enthusiasm. I know I'm American, and I can be confused of that with that. But this is not happy, clappy enthusiasm that's been built up over 50 repetitions of a praise chorus. Sung as if it's some kind of mantra. No, that's not what's in view. This command parallels serve the Lord with gladness. And together, it's the picture of our coming before the Lord of one of of wholehearted praise. So these three commands given to all the earth, to every man, woman, boy, and girl, to shout joyfully, to serve the Lord with gladness, and to come into his presence with joyful singing, these are followed by four things which we are to know, which in turn act as the cause of why we are to do these first three. And while verse three isn't explicitly causal, it is implicitly so. And this is the first part of why we should so praise the Lord. Verse three says, Know that the Lord, know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. These verses uh, closely parallel, or this verse closely parallels Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, where the psalmist writes, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We are to know that, says the psalmist. Know in the sense of not simply knowing the facts, Satan knows the facts better than you or I. Satan knows the facts better than any professor at any theological college in the world. Satan knows the facts. Yet he does not worship the Lord. No, this is more than simple understanding. It is knowing in the sense of experiential knowledge, of assurance of the truth. Well, knowing what? Well, first of all, we're to know that the Lord, He is God. The pointing emphasizes the Lord. There is no other God. The Lord, He alone is the true and living God. All others, as I've said this morning, are fakes and imposters. And this fact alone is enough to drive us to worship, to serve and to praise Him. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He says, secondly, we're to know that, and, and the word that is implied, it carries through to each of these four things that we're to know. We're to know that it is He who made us. 
The Lord is the mighty creator who by the mere exercise of his will brought all that is into existence, all into being. He is the one who alone has the power of being in and of himself. All else is created by him. All creation, then, including us, owes its and our existence to the Creator, to the Lord. And again, this by itself is sufficient for us to come to cause us to worship, to serve Him, to praise Him. But again, the psalmist doesn't stop. And the word, by the way, made, goes further than mere creation. God has taken us out of His creation. And He has fashioned us. He has made us. But made us into what? He's made us into His very own people. These are the next two things that we are to know. We are to know that we are His, and we are to know that we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. You're here this evening. Do you you know that you've been made into a member of God's very own people? That you are one of His sheep? If you are in Christ by trusting in Him, evidenced by the repenting of your sin and desiring to live a life of obedience, then this is what and who you are. It doesn't matter if you feel that way or not. It doesn't change the reality. This is who you are. And the fact that we are creature and that He is creator implies that we are not our own. We belong to the creator. But the Lord is not only creator. He's the one who has again made us, who has fashioned us for Himself. In other words, we are doubly not our own. And it also means we are doubly His. Now, at at this point, some of you may have noticed the discrepancy between what I've read in the ESV and what's in your Bible, especially if you happen to have an AV or a New King James. Does the text read, it is He who made us and we are His, or does it read, it is He who made us, and not we ourselves. Which is correct? Now, this is where we get into something called textual criticism. Not to be confused with higher criticism, which is a tool of liberals who set themselves above the Bible and look down upon it and make pronouncements. Textual criticism just acknowledges, much like in a game of telephone, where you, you sit and you, you, you pass a message, and by the time it's gone all the way around the room, it's a little, it may be a little changed by the end. Well, the the scriptures that we have have been transmitted and the Lord has kept them um, very, very, very accurate. But sometimes some little things have crept in, some slight differences. Nothing that changes the ultimate meaning of any major theological doctrine. So you can rest assured in the veracity and in the dependability and in the integrity of this Bible that you have. But there is a, a science and it's almost an art as well of looking at these variances and seeing what is, what's going on here. And here we have something called the Kativ Kere. Um, I don't know what to, how to put it. Um, conundrum or situation. Kativ means, in Hebrew, Kativ means written. So what is written in the text is the phrase velo. Velo. And it means and not. That's what's written. So, and not we ourselves. However, it is oftentimes read as 
in the, which is what kere means, means red, velo. Velo or velo. Velo, velo. Do you hear the difference? Of course you don't hear the difference. There is no difference. It sounds exactly alike. That is part of the conundrum. Velo and not sounds exactly like velo and his. This is one of 15 different occurrences in the Old Testament where lo, not, and it is written, but yet lo, his, is read. Now, what in the world is going on? Well, to the Hebrew listener and to you and I, they sound exactly alike. So context might give us a bit of a hint, but here in reality, both are a good fit. Though perhaps the latter may be slightly better with regard to parallelism, which is a Hebrew poetic form. One commentary suggests that this ambiguity might actually be intentional. And in fact, both meanings might be exactly what the psalmist had in mind. He writes, he says, the double entendre, um, the, the two different meanings laid side by side, the double entendre of the Kativ Kareh reading in verse 3, in which two di- very different words are heard in the same sounds, introduces a corresponding measure of complexity to the structure of that verse. In other words, it may be meant to be understood as, it is he who made us, and not we ourselves, and we are his. And I think that that is the probable understanding, the correct understanding. But in any case, in either case, we remain doubly the Lord's. For as followers of Christ, we know, paraphrasing the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price. Now, I've pinched this illustration that I'm about to give from Alistair Begg. Some of you may have heard of him. And I confess, I don't know where he pinched it from. No minister has original material. We all borrow it from someone else. But I think it aptly illustrates the point. The story goes something like this. There was once a boy who decided to build a little wooden boat, a little sailboat. And he spends all kinds of time researching how sailboats are built and how they work and, and all that sort of thing. And he, he spends hours and days and weeks and even months building this thing, carefully carving it, carefully shaping it, carefully piecing it together so it's perfect. And then the day comes when he goes down to the river that runs through his small town. And he's thrilled when he puts it in the water and it floats perfectly. It's perfectly balanced. And it's gracefully navigating the swirling waters around it. He was so proud of this little boat. But then fear struck his heart as he realized the boat was now beginning to move out beyond his reach. And in fact, sped up and eventually was lost to his sight. It was gone. And he returned home heartbroken. And his father tried to encourage him to build another one, but he says, no, there's nothing that could replace that one. Some weeks later, this boy is walking through his town on the high street, and there's a toy shop. And in the toy shop, in the window, with pride of place, is his boat. He would know that boat anywhere. And he goes in and he excitedly tells the proprietor, that's my boat. And he explains to him how he designed it, how he built it, and he shows him little marks and things that the guy wouldn't have known. And the proprietor says, I believe it's your boat, but I can't give it to you. 
I paid a man a large sum of money for this boat, a man who brought it in. I can sell it to you, but I can't give it to you. And so the boy goes home and he, he breaks his life savings, his piggy bank, and he takes all his money and he goes to the toy, toy store and he buys back his boat. And he pays the owner, he walks out. And he looks at the little sailboat as he comes out the door and he says, holding it close to him, I made you and I bought you. You are doubly mine. That's the picture that is here. While the psalmist knew of the old covenant people whom God had made, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed as promised through Abraham, we see and we know more fully as his new covenant people, truly from all the earth, and made so by Christ's redemption, being united with him by his Holy Spirit and adopted as sons. The Lord has indeed made us all his very own. We are his creation, but more than that, his people, the sheep of his pasture, we are doubly his. Well, note the focus is on the fact that we are his people, his sheep, and not so much on his pasture, though that detail speaks of his tender care of his people. He pastures us in his pasture. We are safe in his secure care. And so once again, because of what the Lord has done, we are are given more than sufficient cause for us to worship to serve and to praise Him. But now the psalmist leads us to new heights, giving thanks to the Lord for who He is and not just what He has done. Look at verses 4 through 5 as we come to my second point, giving thanks for who the Lord is. The psalmist says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. These are entering His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. These are parallel thoughts. They are equal. His gates, his courts, it's, it's a picture being painted by one of entering the tabernacle or the temple gates and courts, of which there was even a court of the Gentiles. And these words may have been sung during festivals as the people entered in. And when they did so, however, they sung more than they knew. For these words pointed forward to a future time when all the nations would be coming to worship the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 predict this very thing. Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Through Christ, the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. Through Christ, our new and living way, the curtain separating God and man has been rent asunder from top to bottom. He himself is the entrance through which we enter into the true holiest place. Not a mere copy made with human hands but into the very presence of the living God. Do you know of this incredible privilege that you have as God's child? Not that you're going to have someday in the sweet by and by in heaven, but what you have right now. Right now. Does not this spur you 
to spontaneous praise and thanksgiving. This is what the psalmist says should be the result. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Again, there's a similarity with other psalms. Psalm 96 and Psalm 97. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Psalm 97. Rejoice in the Lord, O you His righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. For what reason are we to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise? Why are we to give thanks to Him to bless His name? In the first part of the psalm, we saw that it was because of what the Lord had done as Creator. Here we are to do so because of who the Lord is. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. The word for there indicates causal. For the Lord is good. But causal of what? It's giving the cause behind the invitation to worship in verse 4. And the cause is this. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love, His covenant loving kindness. In the Hebrew, it's chesed. You've probably heard of it. Sometimes translated as mercy. But it's a covenant loving kindness. It endures forever. It's a loving kindness that God is committed to. Unilaterally. His faithfulness endures to all generations. Interestingly, there are no verbs in this verse. And that makes it all the more emphatic. In fact, the word good, tov, is in the predicate position. It begins uh, the verse. Good is Yahweh. Good is the Lord. And John MacArthur makes a comment that God is the source and perfect example of goodness. You know, think of Mark chapter 10 where the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus and says, Good teacher! What must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler thinking, well, you're good, and I'm good. Jesus saying, no. No one is good except God. And Him alone. This verse continues. His steadfast love endures forever. His chesed, again, the Lord's covenant love. Nearly identical to the Hebrew in the refrain of, the, of that Psalm 136, the great Hallel. Here it is, Le'olam Chazdo. There it is, Ki Le'olam Chazdo. If you remember Psalm 136, it, it begins and then there's always this refrain, for the, His steadfast love continues forever. For His steadfast love continues forever. For His steadfast love. That's Ki Le'olam Chazdo. Because forever His steadfast love is. Here, His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Faithfulness is the sense of keeping His promises. Again, parallel to His steadfast love enduring forever. And how appropriate that here in this psalm where we, the people of God, have been identified as being the sheep of His pasture, how appropriate that we should also see this pairing of the Lord's loving kindness and His faithfulness in the closing promise of the great shepherd psalm, Psalm 23.6, where there we are told, surely goodness and mercy, faithfulness and loving kindness, you could translate it that way as well, shall follow me. And as I said this morning, follow is way too wimpy a word. It is pursue. It is chase down. It is to run after. God's faithfulness and loving kindness shall pursue us all the days of our life. 
and I and you, if you are Christ's, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here we are. A fifth of the way through 2024, but yet four-fifths still to go. And the psalmist has given us two rock-solid reasons to continue on and beyond, from this year and beyond with a thankful heart. Because of what the Lord has done for us. That is because of our relationship to Him. In verses 1 through 3, we are given a more than sufficient cause to worship, serve, and praise Him. All of which spring out of a grateful heart. And also because of who the Lord is, verses 4 and 5. That is, the one who is intrinsically good, who in and of himself is good. The one in whom there is no shadow of turning. The one who keeps his covenant love forever and his faithfulness never fails. It is because of him that we can enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise through Christ our Savior. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, we can give thanks to him. We can bless his name from hearts made pure. And he invites all to come to join in in giving thanks to whom and for whom thanks are infinitely owed. Will you come? Let's pray. Our covenant-keeping, all-merciful, all-loving, all-holy, all-righteous, and all-glorious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this, these promises. We thank You for these commands. We thank You for this encouragement, this exhortation to give to You the service, the worship, the honor, the thanksgiving that is due to Your name. Oh Lord, may you take each one of us and may our lives be a living sacrifice to you. That you may be glorified. That your people may be upbuilt. And that your kingdom may be advanced. May you allow the world to see us. And may we point to you. Giving a reason. Being ready to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in us. And we ask this for your glory, in Christ's name. Amen.